Hey, life insurance agents, you're listening to the Modern Life Insurance Selling Podcast, where we provide the tools to help you grow a more profitable life insurance business by selling online and over the phone from anywhere with an internet connection. Even if you're alone in your quest to build your life insurance business, just know that there's a community of life insurance agents at SellTermLife.com, connecting and helping each other grow their businesses from home offices, coffee shops, and beaches all across the nation. Welcome to episode number nine of the Modern Life Insurance Selling Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Root. And today we have an interview lined up with Ryan Penny, whose agency has generated and worked hundreds of thousands of internet life insurance leads, and he'll be sharing his knowledge of what he's learned and what he thinks the future holds for life insurance agents. We'll mainly be covering the topics of a speech he gave at MDRT recently, including stuff like why pricing, underwriting, products, and service don't matter, and what actually does matter. We'll be talking about why Customer 2.0 is changing the life insurance industry and how we as life insurance agents need to understand Customer 2.0. And just having the sales skills and product knowledge isn't good enough anymore. And why agencies need to standardize, systematize, and automate. So before we start, let's go over the usual. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. The links will be in the show notes over at SellTermLife.com. Also, feel free to send us a voicemail with any questions about anything in the life insurance business. It can be marketing, field underwriting, training. We're here to serve you. Just use the send voicemail tab over at selltermlife.com. Okay, let's introduce our guest. Ryan Penny is an expert at using technology to drive life insurance sales and also using technology to streamline the application and underwriting processes. He leverages his experience with search engine optimization, social media, and online marketing to assist agents and agencies to profit. His company, Penny Insurance and Center, is a national brokerage general agency with proprietary tools to assist life insurance agents. Utilizing the same principles and technology his firm provides to agents, his firm sold more than 16,000 policies direct to consumer over the internet last year, and his agency has generated hundreds of thousands of life insurance leads. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Yeah. So I read about your MDRT speech in Malaysia. Was it last week or the week before? It was about customer 2.0 and what we as producers must do to adapt to the new customer. So it's a perfect topic for our audience. And I wanted to ask you some questions regarding the talk you gave. So let's start with the commoditization of life insurance products and services. I know you're seeing the shift from face-to-face sales to online and phone sales. What do you think prompted this? You know, I I think we were one of the early adopters of the non-face-to-face sale. And when we first started doing it, there was only a handful of of insurance companies that would even allow it. You know, this goes back to 2001. And I think what we've seen over the last really 10, 12, 13 years at this point is that more and more of the business is going there. Matter of fact, Limra has released statistics recently that talk about that, you know, basically a third of all life insurance sales were generated online last year. And, and actually talking to the folks at Limra, I think that that number's low because they didn't count a couple things because they can't track it or the carriers aren't providing the information the same way, which is, you know, guys like you who do business over the internet primarily and who are doing a lot of it 
because you're not considered a true direct marketer by the insurance companies and tracked as a direct marketer, you're being tracked like an individual agent, that business didn't get counted in those numbers. And there's a lot of guys wow. like you that do that. So that, that leads me to believe that those numbers are even higher. And the second thing is, is they didn't really have a way to measure life insurance sales that, in, that were generated by traditional agents who maybe saw a client face-to-face, but the lead was initiated online, where that lead came from a source like Bankrate or, or somebody else who was generating those leads and basically sold them to, to a more traditional agent. And I would still say that, that that really is, you know, face-to-face sale is maybe what occurred, but it was really an online sale or kind of the new internet marketing-based sales that are going on. So I, I would have to say, I think that number is probably a lot closer to 50% of all premiums last year. Mm-hmm. I would guess that number is going to continue to grow. And I, and I think that as we see that happening, there's a couple of reasons for it. One is consumers acceptance of, you know, online purchasing that we're seeing it with a lot of places. I think really the way that the music industry happened with, you know, first peer to peer sharing through, you know, the various media sharing services out there, and then you have, you know, Apple kind of came in and, and started doing their, you know, buy a song for 99 cents. And mm-hmm. that model really changed the music industry. And we have seen the same thing with, with stores and, and online retailers like Amazon changing how cons- consumers buy their regular everyday goods and services. And I think the in- insurance industry is just right there in the, same, in the same mix. I think today consumers are buying everything online. And more and more of them are doing it and more and more are, are comfortable doing it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you see the life insurance industry going from today? You know, I think, I think the industry has two big problems. One is, is that there's because of the regulation and how we do business and how compliance is kind of a big part of what we do. Uh, we're, we're slow as an industry to, to change and adopt a lot of things. You know, obviously you and, and people that are in the direct marketing space like us, we've been able to kind of get ahead of some of that. But if you look at us compared to outside the market, outside the insurance industry, we're relatively far behind compared to the, the cutting edge and leading re- retailers out there using some of the technology that is available. Yep. So, so our industry has, has that as one problem. The second problem that they have is that the agent sales force is really an aging sales force. The, you know, the typical agent, if you look at organizations like MDRT and NAFA and even, you know, the state licensing information that we have been able to see, the average age of the agent is somewhere between 55 and 60. Most organizations peg it right around 57 or 58. You know, that's a, that's a bad place as an industry to be. And so I think the, the biggest thing that the industry is going to face is that they have to figure out really how to do three things or there's going to be an outside competitor that's going to come in and change the face of insurance. And whether that's Google or Facebook or somebody else, I don't know yet, but I could see any of those organizations doing it. But we really have to figure out how to how to bring the average age of agents down. And I think that as we start using more and more technology, that will attract younger uh, agents. I think the second thing we have to do is figure out how to uh, streamline the compliance and underwriting processes. I mean, simplified issue underwriting products are great, but we need to figure out how to do that on a, uh, you know, on a mass scale using analytics and, and demographics modeling that's available using, you know, social media and things like that. And we also need to figure out how to get more in line with what is called the accord standards, basically how to make it so that, you know, forms from one carrier to the next are, are more, you know, similar and, you know, less compliance or individual company driven. 
Right. If you think about it on the PNC side, the property and casualty you know companies out there, they all use the exact same application. So if you're applying for home insurance or auto insurance with somebody, it doesn't matter which company you use. All the, the, the form is the same. The only thing different is the logo at the top. Mm-hmm. And that's because that, that side of the industry really pushed for that you know, about 20 years ago and made that happen. The life insurance industry really needs to do the same thing to cut down on on redundancies and, and the things that make you know, the electronic application processes that we use and you use more difficult to sustain long term. Yeah, and you guys have done that with Easy Life too. I mean You know, well, we we did, you know, but we we had to build all that. If you think about that, that's really about eight or nine years worth of work at this point and millions of dollars that have gone into the infrastructure and the technology and the back end support. And that's great because it's helped us grow and be successful as an organization. But you know, we're just one organization. It right. really is not something that's scalable in the current format. We really need to do something different to make it scalable across the whole industry. Yeah, and and that's really we need to get the carriers to start participating and and helping to drive some of the change that the industry needs to have happen. Right, right. So, can you tell me what some advisors that you see? What are they doing to innovate? What are they doing to separate themselves and get to this customer 2.0? Man, I, I would tell you the. You know, it's kind of funny that coming from you, I kind of almost laugh at that question because I could just kind of point to you and say, do whatever Jeff did. <laughs> the reality is, is the guys who are out there who are innovating the best are doing really what you're doing. They're using technology in, in unique ways. That's, you know, part of it is something like this podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's using video conferencing to make your sales. It's using e-applications and e-delivery technology. It's, you know, figuring out a way to, to more effectively health screen your clients and quote them so that you don't have a lot of cases coming back approved other than applied or clients saying, oh, that's not what you told me. I feel like you, you know, kind of pulled a bait and switch on me. So I think the best producers are, are figuring out how to use technology, not just for the purpose of using the technology, but for the purpose of being more efficient and faster at what they do and more accurate at what they do. And that's really what I think the, the ones who are, who are innovating are doing is, is finding out how to be cutting edge with the technology and making it so that they're better at what they do day in and day out. Yeah, I I agree. And what a lot of agents don't understand, and you know, I'm in a situation where you know we generate all of our business online. We use as much technology as possible, even if the carriers or the IMO level, you know, they don't use it, but I might use it. And it's kind of piecing all that together behind the scenes. It takes kind of a lot of time to set up your automation, your processes, and everything. But once you get that and it clicks, business is easy. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, I, I agree with you. That's, that's where advisors, what they can be doing to, to innovate. So to go back to, to your talk at MDRT, and this kind of stood out to me. You were saying that pricing and underwriting and products and service don't really matter. So what does matter? You know, I think that uh, it's funny when I when I made that comment, uh, and I've used that line a few times at various speaking events that I've had the opportunity to participate in, like MDRT, and and I think that that gets a lot of attention because when you say it, it's not what most producers feel or think at first, right? Mm-hmm. And so it really is counterintuitive, maybe because. We've been taught, and, and, I, and I really look at it two ways. You talk about pricing, underwriting, products and service don't matter. I would say that that's really a consumer-focused item. And, and on the agent side, I would, I would argue that you can even go a step further there, which is that compensation underwriting products and service don't matter from the GA level, from the, from the IMO or BGA or whatever term you prefer. It's all really the same thing. Yeah. I would argue that that doesn't matter either. 
And, and here's why I say that. If you think about it, and the, one of the analogies I like to use is, is the grocery store. We've all been to the grocery store, every one of us. And when you go to the grocery store, um, you and I both know that you can walk in, walk down the, the aisle where they have typically the chips on one side and the sodas on the other. You can grab a two liter bottle of soda. And if it's on sale, it might cost you 99 cents. And if you get the generic brand, it's 99 cents and maybe even 79 cents for a two liter bottle, right? Really inexpensive. But we, if we didn't buy it while we were on that aisle and you happen to be standing in the checkout line, there's almost always those little refrigerators right next to the checkout line, right? Yep. And how, how many times have you reached into that, that refrigerator right there and grabbed the 20 ounce soda that cost a buck 79? Twice as expensive, yeah. three times as expensive in some instances as the two liter bottle, which is more than twice. So it's like you're paying double or triple the cost for half as much. Mm-hmm. So you're really paying six times the cost if you think about it in that respect. But it didn't matter because the price wasn't important. What it was was the value that you saw in the in that product at that time, which was it was convenient, it was easy, you were thirsty, whatever the the reasoning behind it was, you ascribed value to it, and you said because of that value, I'm willing to pay the price for it, which in this case was a higher price. Consumers and quite frankly, agents are the exact same way. And what happens is is most agencies. I'm going to talk about from the agency perspective for a second, and then I'll come back to the consumer. From the agency perspective, most agents approach their, their IMO or BGA and say, Hey, I need great products. I need fantastic underwriting. I need top notch service. And I want you to pay me all of your commissions. Mm -hmm. Well, those things don't go together because if I have to give you all the money that we make on the, on the override side, that's, that's where we make our profit as a GA. Well, how am I going to provide great products, great underwriting and superior service? They're counterintuitive. You can't do it. And so I think what we have found is that by providing things beyond what, what we talk about there is commissions, underwriting, product service, we a lot of times we call it cups. Instead of talking about that cups paradigm, we say, yeah, that's important and we want to treat you fairly and we want to make sure that we're paying you well and providing all those, those resources for you and that service for you. But more importantly, we want to help you be better at what you do. And so we a lot of times flip it around and talk about what we call, t- what we call TIN, T-I-N. And TIN for us is technology and infrastructure and networking opportunities. And it's things that really make you as the producer a better producer. Mm-hmm. So I'm providing technology drop ticket applications, things that are going to streamline your, your underwriting and application process. I'm also providing infrastructure, which is, you know, my staff becomes your assistant and, and you know, you can utilize those things to help you be better in your job. And then finally, networking. Hey, we can put you in touch with, you know, you want to start doing direct marketing and you're Joe Blow agent on the street. I can tell you, hey, I know a guy, Jeff Root or others, and say, here's a guy that we can refer you to and have you talk to him, and he can help answer your questions if this is what you really want to do because we have that broad network. And vice versa, we can say somebody who's maybe in the direct marketing space, you run into somebody who needs a huge estate planning case or some something complicated like Coley or premium finance, we can flip that around and put you in touch with somebody who can help you accomplish that as well. And so really what happens is by adding value beyond compensation, underwriting products and service. That's how we differentiate ourselves. And from the consumer standpoint? Flipping it around to the consumer standpoint, I think what you run into is the consumer is the exact same way. Consumers want to see value in their services and products that they're receiving, right? Mm-hmm. And if there's no if there's no intrinsic value, if there's no value above and beyond what they can obviously see, then everything becomes a commodity. And a commodity, the only way a commodity competes is based on service or price. 
So you either have to have the best service or the best price, or usually the best service and the best price mm-hmm. to, to be able to win when it's a commodity war. And, and I, would, I would put you in the perspective of think about Walmart. How does Walmart compete? Walmart competes exclusively on price. If you've ever tried to get service at Walmart, you and I both know it's not happening, right? You walk <laughs> yeah. into Walmart and you say, I need someone to be able to you know, tell me about the difference between these two TVs. The, the answer is going to be, well, one's brand A and the other one's brand B and this one's more expensive. That's about as much as they know. Okay. And that's because they're competing on price. They expect you to have been self-educated and come in and figure out what you want to buy. And they have kind of guaranteed that they're going to give you the best price. But most consumers today, especially with complex products or complex sales, especially things like life insurance, really they want that value added. And that's why we've seen a lot of change where consumers are actually buying products that are more expensive than other products because they have intrinsic value in them. Mm -hmm. So for example, I really like Banner's term life insurance product. There's other carriers that are sometimes less expensive than Banner, but Banner's very competitive typically. But when you have a, a, you know, carrier A, let's say SBLI versus carrier B, Banner, if I'm looking at those two carriers, Banner has a, a rider on their product that when we explain it to the consumer, we talk about what that does, that's it's their meta guide rider. It's a free rider. It's a medical second opinion on the product. And when you explain how it works to a consumer, almost every time they're willing to pay that extra dollar or two a month to get the better product. And the same thing happens when we start talking about, you know, do you want living benefits, things like long-term care or chronic illness or, or critical illness type writers. Mm-hmm. Again, they're willing to pay more to get something that they see value in. And so really has proven to me that that, that pricing does not matter. And underwriting and, and the products don't always matter. The service doesn't always matter. It's really that you have to provide the value to the consumer, and that's how they make their decision. You, you want to give them something beyond the commodity. Because mm-hmm. if you're just competing on commodity, it's a tough uphill slog because you're fighting against everybody else who's spreadsheeting the exact same companies to show the exact same products, and it makes it really hard to win in that, in that environment. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. I think that's where a lot of agents fall short, especially the internet agents. We get caught up in the commodity side of term life insurance and selling based on price. Absolutely has to be based on value. 100% agree. In your MDRT talk, you also, you know, you mentioned customer 2.0. So what do you mean by that? Who is customer 2.0? You know, customer 2.0, and it's not a term I created. It's a kind of a common marketing term these days. We see it from a lot of sources, but really customer 2.0 is the modern customer. It's the customer that has information at their fingertips, is able to do research able to figure things out on their own, and quite frankly, not only able to, willing to do those things and wanting to do those things before they make a purchase. If you go back just a handful of years ago when we started in the direct marketing space, it was not uncommon to make a sell on the very first phone call. You would get the client on the phone on a very high percentage of calls, and on that very first call, you would walk them through whatever your sales process was and make a sell and you know send out an application and, and, and kind of have that transaction take place. Mm-hmm. Today, what we're seeing is it's more and more common that the customer, when they, you start talking to them, as you go through this process, you realize that they've done their research because they start asking you about other companies, other brands, other you know provisions, different types of products, because they have at least done some basic education. And what that means is that means that they're using the internet to figure things out. And then they still are saying, hey, thanks for telling me all this information, Jeff, but I want to go do a little more research. I'll come back to you if it's what I really want. 
And so what, what that means is that customer 2.0 needs to be interacted with on a really different basis. They, because they have all this information at their fingertips, you need to provide them the information that they're missing. You need to give them the ability to self-educate, preferably on your own website or through your own content if available. And you need to be able to lead nurture them from the time that you originate that lead or the time that that lead first is purchased. You need to be able to take them from that initial contact with them. And you you need to be willing to educate and, and nurture them for not just, you know, 10 days or two weeks or 30 days or 90 days, which is kind of where we used to be. Now what we're seeing is that the research is indicating that these consumers will come back and buy at very high percentage. Forrester Research did a, a study that concluded last year that they said like 83 or 84% of all these leads will actually buy the exact product or service that they're looking at today from somebody, whether it's you or your competitor, within the next 24 months. So what does that mean that your, your nurturing cycle needs to be? You need to be staying in front of those leads and nurturing those leads for, for 24 months, 36 months you know, forever. Mm-hmm. We, we've started moving very, very aggressively in, as a firm towards what we internally term as the buy or die philosophy. The reality is a, a lead is still a good lead until one of two things happen. They buy a product or service from us or the client dies. Now, obviously there's things like opt out and whatever else, but the reality though is, is that most people aren't going to opt out. And so it puts us right back where we're at, which is they're either going to buy a service or they're eventually going to die or you know, the email address is going to be bad or whatever. But that's really the same thing from a marketing perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many things to, as an agent, that we need to be implementing. Like you said, the, that nurture sequence. Not a lot of agents nurture at all, let alone past a couple weeks. So right. you know, they, may, they may have an email sequence, but beyond that, there's so many different ways we can be hitting our, our prospects here. So what does the modern life insurance agent need to capture these you know, customer 2.0s besides the you know, an email nurture? You know, they, they definitely need the email nurture. They need some technology. I think some of the things that are essential tools maybe for the modern life insurance agent, if you will, are things like a CRM or a client management system, whichever you know, variety of that, of that they, they want to talk about. There's some common ones out there that are really big like Salesforce. It's a good system, but it's not insurance specific. I would say one of the difficulties we have in our industry is that because of, uh, you know, kind of the regulation and compliance we talked about earlier, it makes it hard for an off-the-shelf system to work. You really need to look at something that's designed for our industry if you can find it. The second one is you need multiple communication tools. You need to be able to send not only things like an email and make a phone call, which are obvious. You need to be able to do things like use text message and social media and have you know, a website that that is, you know, able to track uh, or nurture clients through that process until they're ready to buy. And and really, that's where things like analytics and data tracking come in. I mean, it's funny, you know, to tell an insurance agent, hey, you need to know how Google Analytics works, or hey, you need to know how, you know, email analytics works. Most guys look at you like, what are you talking about? I don't even know what that is. But the reality is, is at a big level, that needs to be being done by somebody, whether that's being done by the the agency you work with, the IMO, the the carrier even, there's got to be some tracking there happening because if not, you're missing a lot of opportunities just because you're not not knowing what the consumer is really interested in. Mm -hmm. We've been able to look at some things recently and watch consumer behavior on some of our websites and it's amazing. They'll come in there and we think they're looking for life insurance. And they land on a life insurance page, but then they quickly, you know, transition from life insurance over to some other product category, read six articles, and then move on. Well, 
what does that mean? That means that they really were not interested in life insurance. That's just where they kind of started. They wanted to find out more about disability insurance, let's say. Well, if we were smart and we were doing a good job, what we would do and are doing is trying to get them to download a free guide or a white paper or get something where we can capture their information. And now we know, hey, this client's not necessarily a life insurance client. They may be interested in that, but it looks like they're more interested in disability. And so now we need to market disability insurance to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In your MDRT talk too, you said you know, something about the new sales funnel with cross-selling and just different types of prospects. So tell, you know, tell our listeners what you mean by the new sales funnel. So, you know, it, it, this kind of came as an epiphany to, uh, to me. I was actually at a conference a couple of years ago and was listening to somebody talk about how to maximize the sales funnel. And I think we all hear that in our own minds we, and we go, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. I know what that means. Mm-hmm. And, you know, individually we talk about you know, hey, I've got all these great things in my pipeline or in my sales funnel. I've got all these great leads or great prospects that I'm dealing with right now. And that's fantastic. The problem is, is that's just one part of what what we have realized is the new sales funnel or the new sales paradigm that's taken place out there. And so we tried to we tried to graph it out or map it out, figure out what it looked like and what the steps were in it. And what we came up with was really three pyramids, if you were, or three funnels. And and two of them are the traditional, you know, big on the top, small on the bottom funnels, and they just happen to be stacked on each other. And we looked at it, we said, well, that makes sense because it's really a marketing funnel and a sales funnel, right? Mm-hmm. There's all the stuff you do before they get into the sales process. And that's things like having a website, getting them there, doing, you know, advertising or doing, you know, pay-per-click or whatever it is that you're doing to generate those leads or that interest in the first place. And it's kind of nurturing through through that process until they fill out that lead capture form and say, yes, I'm interested in buying a specific product or service. Mm-hmm. Now they're in the sales funnel. Well, most sales guys, we start with, I got a lead, now let's move through it. But we totally neglect that top marketing funnel. And that's why a lot of guys are kind of starving in our industry. If you think about it, you know, it's like, man, I'm a great sales guy, but I never, I don't have enough leads. I need to buy more leads. I need more leads. Well, it means that they're bad marketers. Yep. And so what they need to figure out is they need to figure out that, hey, if you're a good salesperson, that's, that's fantastic. But you also need to be successful. You need to be a good marketer or at least partner with somebody who's a good marketer that can generate the leads. And on the flip side, what we have found is that that the most effective sales and, and the, the best sources of clients and leads are really on the bottom, which is a, an, an inverted funnel. So it's a pyramid where it goes small to big. Mm-hmm. And what, what I mean by that is, is that you know after a person makes that purchase – a lot of us, we refer to them as clients. Now, this is my client. And yes, that's probably accurate, but I think that it needs to be broken down a little bit differently, which is we really look at it as that that person in that in that bottom funnel, they're your customers as a whole or, or your buyers, if you will. And, and as buyers, there's really three categories of them. And this is, I think, what you're talking about, how we break them down. Right. We break down we break down you know, people into kind of three groups. So there's the suspects. That's the people on the top funnel, which is that marketing funnel. People we're marketing to and trying to move down into the next section, which is the sales funnel. Now they become prospects. Most people would refer to that as a lead. So here's this prospect that we're trying to now convert from being a lead into a sell. And once they've purchased something, we call them buyers. Again, that's just someone that's purchased something from us. But what we have really started to focus on where we've seen the biggest impact is, is in that last funnel is the buyers. 
And the buyers we've broken down really into three categories. There's customers, those defined as a one-time purchaser. They've only purchased one product or service from me. That's all, they, that's all they've interacted with me so far. The second group is clients, those that have made two or more purchases from us. Um, and we really make a big distinction there because if, they've, if they're willing to purchase a second time, that means that we have a, a, a really good opportunity to not only sell them a second time, but a third and a fourth and a fifth. It, it continues on. Absolutely. If they're willing to buy that second time, it means that they trust us. And then the third one is advocates. And what we look at those is those are basically ones that are actively making referrals to us or have made referrals to us in the past. And that's important because, again, it shows that level of trust in, the, in that buyer and that person who, who is a, now a customer of ours that they trust us enough to refer other, other prospects or suspects to us, right? Yep. We generate, over the last decade, we've generated hundreds of thousands of leads. And as we've looked at the, the analytics and the metrics around all of these leads and all these purchases uh, and all these you know, enforced policies that we have and all the policyholders that we have, what we've found is that we have a whole bunch of customers. We've got a, a lot smaller number of clients and we've got a very, very small number of advocates, those who are making those referrals. But if you look at which ones are the most valuable from, from a um, dollars and cents standpoint, you know, the cost of the lead versus the total lifetime revenue of the client, hands down, advocates and clients are the best type of buyer that we have in our, in our database. So they're the ones that we really should be spending the most time focused on and the most time trying to, to sell other products and services to. We don't want to neglect the customers, those one-time buyers. We want them to become clients, multiple-time buyers as well. But, but that's a different marketing campaign to them. Then we market you know, things to on kind of a mass scale. Customers, you know, they get a little bit of everything because we don't know what they're always interested in. Mm-hmm. Clients, though, once they've made that second purchase, we can start looking at things like, hey, we understand who you are. We understand where you're at financially or in your life cycle, where you are and what kind of things are important to you. And we can start making more educated recommendations for products and services. Same thing goes for advocates. And, and advocates, you know, again, they're, getting, they're, they're not just buying multiple times. They're also providing us with new prospects and opportunities to sell, sell products to people. So those by far are the most valuable and really where we've started to focus a lot of our time. So, I mean, you talk about, well, let's just say clients and advocates are your most valuable buyers. That's correct. Right. So after your agency places a life insurance policy, what happens next? How do you make them become clients and advocates rather than just a customer? You know, there, there's a lot of things that we have tried and that we still try. We're still, I mean, this is one of those things, this is, I think maybe the Holy grail of insurance, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of, I think a lot of life insurance guys think the Holy grail is going down to your local PNC agency and saying, let me talk to all your customers. And, and that probably is a good one too. But the reality is, is it's how do you get that one-time buyer, that one-time customer, you know, that customer, how do you get them to move to the next level, that client or advocate stage? Mm-hmm. And we've, we've done a whole bunch of things. One, and one, and maybe the most simple one has just been ask, you know, is there anything else I can help you with? Or, you know, have you considered X, Y, or Z? We've even started doing more of the, like an Amazon approach, which I think is what we're seeing is, is working the best in a, in a web-based environment is consumers who purchased life insurance also purchased and then we show them you know disability or health insurance or whatever other products and categories we have Mm -hmm. and we're seeing that that's helping convert a customer a one-time purchaser to a multiple-time purchaser so that's that's being effective the advocates part how do we get them to refer that goes back a little bit to you know the conversation about we had earlier about service you have to have good service and you have to do good stuff 
But I think what happens is is you have to set the kind of set the table early on that one. You have to say, hey, look, if I do a good job, is there any reason you wouldn't be willing to you know refer your friends or family to me? Yeah, you're not asking for referrals. You're not even you're not even saying you want referrals. What you're saying is, if I do a good job, would you be willing to give me those referrals? And if they say yes, you say, great. What does a good job look like to you? How do I know I've done a good job? You know, that now that sets the table for you to be able to come back to that consumer later and say, you know, you told me if I did X, Y, and Z and that we got this done for you, you'd be, you know, willing to talk about making referrals to me. I did X, Y, and Z. Where do you want to go from here? And we've seen that work. Some people are better that, at that than others. Obviously, I think it's a rapport thing. It's hard. You know, a lot of, a lot of agents, it's funny. I, I, I think we, we want to sell what we know and we're very afraid in general to ask for things that we're maybe uncomfortable asking for. Because we're we're afraid we're going to offend the the customer, but I would argue that if we if we've done a good job and if we're providing good service and we're being the professionals that we're supposed to be, then doing the next step in the planning, which is you know, hey, let me help you, let me help your fam- family, your friends, whoever you know, and let me help you decide what to do next. That's part of our job, mm-hmm. and if we and if we position it correctly, I don't, I have not found that most consumers are opposed to at least having the conversation. What are essential tools that the modern life insurance agent needs? And you've touched on this before, I know. You mentioned a CRM, right? Is that an essential tool? Absolutely. You have to have that. If you don't have a CRM or, or, or if you don't have at least a, a really organized way to track your clients and your, your leads and prospects, you, you're really shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, so when we started using a CRM system, ourselves, we saw a huge uptick in, in how we were able to close sales. When we went to the next kind of phase there, when we were able to distribute leads to multiple agents and track results and do reporting and things like that, again, we saw a huge uptick in, in the results. And, and that really comes down to that because we were able to track it and because we were able to put accountability around it and because we were able to, to have things happen automatically, maybe being the most important component, it really had a big big impact on what we're doing. And, you know, I would tell you that, that automation is huge and there's some things that need to be done before you can automate. But if, when you get to the automation stage, that's what really will set you apart. When you can make sure that you have, you know, an automatic email going out to that consumer that says, Hey, I I got your request for life insurance or whatever insurance product it is. And I'm going to be reaching out to you soon. And, and, you know, here's my contact information. And, you know, it, it sets the stage right out of the gate that that they ask for something, that you're responding to them very quickly, and that you're going to follow up with them. And then when you follow up with them, you know, again, there should be automated responses happening along the way so that they know, you know, where they are in the process, you know, where the underwriting is, what's going on with their case. There should be scheduled times in there for when you should reach out to them just to, you know, have a hey, I just wanted to call and let you know everything's still progressing well kind of phone call. Because those things are where the touch points come in that kind of go back to taking the commoditization away from the product because now we're adding the personal touch and service that's important. And we've already added the value on the front end, which is we we inform them about other options that they can get besides just the cheapest price. And if we've done all that kind of well, I see that being the biggest single kind of group of things that you can do to impact the business. And it all starts with having to have a, a that CRM or a good database management system. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, not just from the client experience, but from an agent experience too. If you automate, if you have those emails automatically going out, it saves you a ton of time and you can handle more 
more leads, more prospects. You can talk to more people if you have systems working while you're sleeping per se, you know, you have a call center. How many, how many leads with your CRM can you max out an agent on? You know, we like to keep them in like the 15 to 20 leads a day range, Mm -hmm. but realistically we've had agents and and various campaigns and depending on what's kind of going on, taking as many as like 40 or 50 leads in a day that tends to kind of max them out. They, They start freaking out after a while because you can't handle the volume of phone calls that that starts generating very easily. Right. But, you know, we have we have spikes in our business just like anyone else. And, you know, we've got agents who will take, you know, 30, 40, 50 leads in a day and be successful at managing those 30, 40, 50 leads in that single day. And even over the course of, of you know, a, a week or two, they can handle that volume because of the automation. Exactly. There's no way yeah. you can handle more than maybe 10 leads a day. And, and I think that that's kind of crazy if you don't have the automation because you, you can't even remember who you talked to yesterday, let alone who you're supposed to be calling today. And it kind of compounds on, on itself. I mean, you get 10 leads today and 10 leads tomorrow and 10 leads the next day. That's 30 leads. The problem is, is that 30 leads is like, you know, 90 phone calls and, and you know, 90 emails that probably should go out in those first three days. Mm-hmm. How do you make 90 phone calls and 90, you know, emails go out over the course of three days just with the leads? And that's not, that's assuming you have nothing else to do. How do you do that? Well, you really can't by yourself. That's why you have to use the technology. Absolutely. So for the, for the modern life insurance agent, what's the best advice you can give someone? You know, I touched on this. I touched on automate a little bit. Uh, and I always talk about standardize, systematize, and automate. And what I mean by that is you have to standardize everything you do first. And, and the best, again, maybe analogy for that or, or, or idea on that is think about McDonald's. You know, I don't care if you like the food or not, but if you go to a McDonald's, you know exactly what you're going to get. And it doesn't matter if you're going in Texas where you live or in California where I live or if I'm going in Malaysia or China, or it doesn't matter, you go to, to McDonald's, you're pretty much walking in, they all look the same, they all wear the same uniform, and they all do the same process. Mm-hmm. And, and realistically, you need to have that set up in your, in your own business as well. And that means your emails need to look the same, they need to be the consistent you know, kind of format, they, they need to really kind of jive with your whole look and, and feel of your website, and everything else you're doing, it kind of needs to be standardized. Once you've standardized things, once you kind of built that, this is how we do it, then you need to go to the next step, which is the systematized part. And what I mean by that typically is that you need to say, okay, this is how we're going to do it. And now here's the checklist around doing it the way we just decided. And so a good example of that is, you know, systematizing it. If you're going to, if you're going to say, hey, we're all going to answer the phone this way. Well, systematizing it would be walking around and making sure that everybody's phone has the little message card or however you, whatever script it is that you're reading taped right to the phone or right to their computer monitor. So there's no way that they can miss it. Mm-hmm. Part of standardization is also monitoring. You have to make sure that you're enforcing the, this is how we do it and this is what you're going to do. And then the last piece of that is, is once you've kind of standardized what you're doing and then systematize how you're going to do it and how everyone's going to kind of fulfill that obligation, then you can start automating things. And one of the places where I've seen the biggest impact is in, in my emails. So I have my emails and I use auto rules and you know, the auto attendant and things like that to sort out my emails. And I get probably five or 600 emails every single day. It's a lot of emails. There's no way I can effectively look at five or 600 emails yeah. if I don't have some sort of sorting methodology to make sure that the more, most important emails are looked at first. And so I had to go through and figure out, okay, how am I going to standardize my, my inbox? What's it going to look like? How are I going to set up my folders? Okay, now how am I going to systematize it? How am I going to make sure that all these things go where they're supposed to go the way that I want them to? 
And then how do I automate that process so that I can effectively do it? And that even if I'm not here, it's still happening. If you think about it on the small scale, like email, I mean, that probably saves me a couple hours every single day because of the automation. It took me a while to do it on the front end, but I've easily recouped all the time I spent doing it and have now, you know, have bonus time, if you will, because I did it in the first place. And there's so many processes and so many things that we do as agents and our practices each and every day that we can do that way. And I mean, I would tell you, if you're looking at your Outlook inbox, you know, every time something dings, you're probably doing the wrong thing. Right. If you're if you're making outbound phone calls to clients that are already have enforce policies or, you know, have an application pending prior to calling the the new lead that just hit your system, you're probably doing the wrong thing. You've got the standardization and the system station part in the wrong order. And there's no way you can automate that if, or, and be successful if it's already in the wrong order. So you really need to think through the processes to make sure that you're doing it the right way. Absolutely. And I think that's the key to scaling your business in the modern world we're living in here. An, an agent can handle 15, 20, 30 plus leads a day. And to a lot of agents out there, they may think, man, I don't even get that in a week or two weeks, you know? So the reason that we're able to do this is because of these technologies and these, the standardizing and systematizing and automation of all these processes. And that's how we're able to handle this. It's basically handling big data, right? I mean, it's really what we're doing. We're managing data. Yeah, you, you really are. And it's funny you say that about, you know, man, I don't get that many in a week. Well, I would say the reason you don't get that many in a week is because you don't have a process in place to handle the leads you're already getting. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's no way that you can grow the volume of your business. There's no way that you can grow the volume of consumers that you, you know, potential buyers, those prospects that you can talk to in a day if you don't have a process in place. Because the only way you can get time to effectively market, which is that top end of the funnel, is if you have time to do it. And we spend so much time as agents in that sales piece of the funnel that we never bother to pull our heads up and, and take that breath to, to look at our marketing or to look at how we do client nurturing for the, for the people who've already bought products and services from us. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is once we get to a certain scale or size, we're stuck in that, in that sales part of the funnel all day long, every day, working on process stuff that we shouldn't be doing in the first place. It should be outsourced. It should be standardized or systematized. or should be an assistant doing it, whatever. You should not be doing processing ever. If you're a sales guy, you should be selling and or marketing. That is it. And if you're, if you're doing something other than that, it means that you're not maximizing the income that you can and should be making. Absolutely. Any non revenue producing tasks should be handed out, should be delegated, should be outsourced. I agree. Yeah, and, and a lot of them can be automated. That's the crazy thing about it. I mean, it's like I don't even think you need to go get an assistant today, for example. You can automate so much stuff by spending, you know, if you just say, hey, look, I'm going to spend this next week. I'm going to take a, a vacation from my sales for a week and I'm going to fix my process and I'm going to automate as much of this stuff as I can and get it all squared away. I guarantee you that you'll come back that second week and you'll make more money that second week than you would have if you had just stayed working the, the two weeks in between, right? Yep. Because you're going to be so much more effective the second week and you're going to have so much less administrative tasks going on and that you have to deal with because you automated it all and got it out of the way most of the time that you will be more successful from that point going forward forever. And, and I can prove that kind of, in, again, just look at it this way. How many times have you know, known that you need to go on a trip? You're going on vacation. You got, you got to travel for business, whatever it is, right? 
how much stuff do you get done that day before that last day in the office? How much stuff do you get done that day? <laughs> not, not much at all. It's funny because you get almost nothing done that yeah. day before. But if you go one day before that, the one that you know that you're, this is really the last full day I got in the office. I got to get everything knocked out today. And I got to get all the emails sent, all the phone calls made and everything. You're a juggernaut. You're a machine that day because you cut out all of the stuff that wasn't important. And so think about what that day looked like. Think about what that perfect day looks like where all you're doing is making sales phone calls, following up with customers, doing the stuff that is money-driven driven stuff. And all the stuff that you were able to cut out to make that happen, that's the stuff you should be getting rid of and automating or standardizing and outsourcing to somebody else. Yep, 100% agree. Great, great stuff here. I'm, and for me, I mean, I'm definitely, after our, after our talk here, going to be shifting my focus this year towards implementing and automating more retention-based marketing and cross-selling, you know, rather than always chasing down that new client. Just based on your wisdom here, that's something that not a lot of agents, even myself, even grasp because we're always chasing down that, that new sale, that new client, and not, and not even thinking about our, you know, our current client base. And that really is the growth mechan- mechanism if you can automate it. Yeah, and I think about it this way, Jeff. I mean, you, I don't know how many sales you've made over the last few years, thousands I know, but I don't know what the total number of, of customers is there, right? right? But let's let's just say it's 5,000 customers. That's just an easy way to think about it. These are 5,000 one-time purchasers. If you could just go get 5% of those people to become clients this year, what does that do to your bottom line? Huge. Because there's no, yeah, the acquisition Huge. cost, there's, there's nothing, there's no acquisition cost there. There's no acquisition cost. And there's no data cost. Think about think about how much time you spend collecting data. Mm-hmm. You know, where do you live? What's your address? What's your income? All this stuff. It's important. We have to get it. But this is where if you have a CRM and you've already collected the data one time, to, to move it to, from one product sale to the next product sale, hey, you bought a, a life insurance policy the first time and now we're talking about disability insurance, you know, 95% of the application information that we've already collected for life insurance transfers right on over. Yep. So that means that the process of even making the sale is faster. And now you've got to sell from a customer who now just became a client. And now as a client, you now know that this person's willing to do business with me on an ongoing basis going forward. And so now you get to say, great, now that we've taken care of this next piece in the planning puzzle, the next piece after this one is fill in the blank based on their demographics. You know, if they're younger, maybe it's critical illness. If they're older, maybe it's long-term care. You know, if they're over 65, maybe it's Medicare supplement plans, dental or vision insurance. If it's, you know, a couple, maybe it's, hey, health insurance, you know, now, now we need to worry about health insurance. And, you know, if you have the ability to sell home and auto, maybe it's that. Whatever the product is, it doesn't really matter. You want to do a, what we refer to as account rounding. And this is something we, t- we took from the, the PNC world. They talk about account rounding all the time, which is, how many total policies does one family or one person have? You know, if you think about the average PNC agency, they have home insurance, auto insurance. And if they're doing a good job, they've probably sold liability or an umbrella type policy or, and or life insurance, right? Yeah. That means that each person has four products. That's kind of their account rounding table. They go, look, if, if, each, if each household doesn't have four products, I haven't maximized that client, right? You need to look at each one of your customers and each one of your clients, those with multiple purchases, and figure out what products can I sell by category, and then which products do these clients actually already have. And you should be trying to round out that account. If it's five products, 10 products, whatever the number is, you should know that number, know the products, and be able to round it out so that each one of your customers 
becomes a client and that on the way to becoming a client, you're starting to talk to them about each one of those things in succession and round out that account so that they end up having five, six, seven policies with you. Because the best way to make an advocate is to sell somebody a lot of products and services that make their life better. Because that's the person who's going to say, man, my financial guy, my insurance guy is awesome. Here's what he's done for me. Mm-hmm. And now you get those referrals that you want. And referrals are the best leads because they're free. Absolutely. All right, Ryan, I think that's, that's a lot of great information. I appreciate you sharing your, your wisdom with us today. And you know, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Glad I could do it, Jeff. Appreciate it. And now for a peek into our community of life insurance agents over at SellTermLife.com, here are some of this week's hot topics. So this week in the community, there's a discussion about lead referral sources and developing referral relationships. So agents talk about their referral sources and how they went about getting them. You could absolutely build an entire life insurance business around just referrals without ever purchasing an internet lead and do this 100% over the phone. So there's also a topic about defending your website's content. We discuss what you can do when someone plagiarizes your content We also discuss letters we've received from life insurance companies about removing and changing some of the content we've published. As far as new products go, we discuss a new no medical exam life insurance product that just hit the market that goes up to a million dollars in coverage. There's a few catches, but it's a great product, well-priced, and decisions are made within 48 hours. And as far as field underwriting goes, we talk about a life insurance company giving non-smoker rates for occasional cigarette users. So even those social smokers out there can qualify for preferred best non-smoker under certain conditions with this company. And as far as the rest of the market goes, this is the only company that's doing this. To join the conversation and discover how you can use modern techniques to sell more life insurance, work more efficiently, and on your own terms, Head over to SellTermLife.com. We'll see you back next Thursday morning for another value-packed episode of the Modern Life Insurance Selling Podcast. Editing and production of this podcast were provided by Authority Engine. Learn more at authorityengine.com.